Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We talk Skidmore talking research, the education secretary may have broken the law, measuring well-being and student sanctions for online posts. It's all coming up. I think there is particularly an issue here with unconditional offers. I mean, you look at the data is quite quite staggering and I think you're 300% more likely, or 300 times, sorry, more likely to get an unconditional offer now than you were seven or eight years ago. So it can't be the case, surely, that in seven or eight years... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way in to higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to run through the endless fields of wheat of higher education policy. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In Hertfordshire today, we have Kate Wicklow, Policy Manager at Guild HE. Kate, give us your highlight of the week, please. So this week, I've been down to Devon and Cornwall to visit some of our incredible Guild HE members, Marjon, Falmouth and Plymouth College of Art. And they're doing some really exciting things in innovation and knowledge exchange. Uh, and in London, we have Graham Atherton, Director of the National Education Opportunities Network. Graham, your highlight of the week, please. Okay, well, I'll tell you what wasn't my highlight of the week is because I'm a Manchester United fan, it was the football, <laughs> so... You know, I, I try and be happy for the other teams, but uh, I try and tell my wife it just doesn't work that way. So that was a non-highlight for me, frankly. But we'll see. On a more professional level, um, we did have our uh, sixth annual Neon Awards uh, last week. We have an annual awards ceremony for those who work in a widening access community. And we had over 50 guests last week, all of whom received commendations or nominations. And we had we had five students of the year, all of whom were student ambassadors, but had also come from widening access backgrounds. And, and they had actually gone on and set their own projects up and very inspiring stories, as well as initiatives of the year. And really just great examples of, of the diversity and strength of the work we're involved with. So, yeah, I mean, that's a highlight of the year, never mind highlight of the week. So, yeah, it balanced off the football, obviously. So yeah. And in Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's associate editor, Minto Felix. Minto, what is your highlight of the week, please? Well, Rachel, I've just come back from my first um, visit to Dublin. And uh, we had a great time away with friends. In addition to seeing the beautiful countryside, uh, my friends and I were attacked, absolutely attacked by a colony of seagulls. We're doing our best to have some hot chips. I have never seen anything as big as these seagulls. Anyway, with that image, let's get going. Um, In a speech this week, Chris Gidmore, Minister for Universities, Science, Research and Innovation, focused in on the research bit of his title. The first of the Minister's four planned speeches on the topic, he had some interesting things to say about research and researchers. So Minto, can you give us a bit of background on this please? 
absolutely, Rachel. So the focus of this speech um, was really about increasing the number of researchers by 260,000 bodies. Skidmore focused on not only where the talent will be attracted from, but also how they'll be retained. So on the point of where, the minister really highlighted the need to nurture homegrown talent and eliminate disparities between groups of uh, students that are wanting to do PhDs, for example, increasing the proportion of female students in physics, improving loan support. On the point of international students, he reiterated the one-year period of leave that has been made available for doctoral students, which, as listeners of Wonky will be familiar with, was a was a uh, featured in the international education strategy. On the point of how, though, which was really the more important element of um, of his speech about how these uh, PhD students and other researchers will be retained. The minister outlined a wide range list of strategies from announcing um, funding schemes, both existing and, and new funding schemes, such as the Stephen Hawkins Fellowship that's just been announced, investing more in centres for doctoral training, improving the employability of PhD students and opening up pathways for them to enter into industry, as well as um, uh, highlighting the important um, the important issue of non-disclosure agreements, which has uh, been a, a feature of some press articles earlier in the week. Uh, the speech was really an opportunity for him to highlight that DfE will be tabling some new proposals around uh, these NDAs to strengthen confidentiality clauses um, so that researchers are protected on things like um, misconduct so they don't have to, um, that they don't feel obliged to not speak up on about these issues, but that research findings are, are protected. Um, I think, well, I think he's right. I think the problem that I had with it is that it didn't really go into enough detail as to really understand what the the main issues are with developing research innovation in this way. So, for example, we, I picked out two things. So, we need to ensure that the research funding is spread more evenly because there are loads of universities doing excellent and innovative research that directly impacts industry and they don't really get the same level of, of government support as a very small pocket of universities um, that seem to get a lot of the STEM and research grants. So, um, especially within Guild HE, um, most of our members don't receive high funding, for example, even though they have make a huge impact um, to their local and regional economies through um, R&D research. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that um, I was really disappointed, actually, that this government seems to be talking a lot about access and participation, but aren't actually making any tangible recommendations for how we improve access and participation in postgraduate study. So whilst postgrad loans have been improving access to fund postgraduate study, there's actually been very little activity or very little supported activity for universities to go out and encourage people from diverse backgrounds to undertake postgraduate study. Graham, you're, I mean, your organisation is focused indeed on the entire access uh, agenda. What did you make of sure. this? Well, I agree with Kate on, in that area. I think that there was some funding provided by the Higher Education Funding Council two or three years ago to try and look at innovative ways of trying to support the flow of different students into postgraduate activity, but it wasn't a huge amount of funding. I'm not sure what it really led to. I mean, I think the support for post postdoctoral and doctoral students is really important. I mean, I think that this is a long time for people to remain in a higher education setting before they really move into employment and I'm not really sure that there's devoted support around that I mean for instance I mean obviously there are many opportunities or some opportunities for those people to work through for your doctorate and through that in nearly postdoctoral phase there could be more done to think about how you could support particular groups of students to have more support and employment opportunities to make it more robust I mean it, there's still a kind of I think an idea that, that you're working individually you're working on your own through that period you have to sink or swim if you like um, and I think that we've still got a lot of work to do at the undergraduate level but a lot of work to do at that level I mean also I think for some young people, younger students coming in, the idea that if they're going to end up in certain sorts of occupations 
there is a period after undergraduate study where you then need to continue to study in the postgraduate or for doctorate for that level. They're not really aware of that. So they don't know. They think you enter into a three-year arrangement and actually you enter into a five, seven, eight, ten-year arrangement to end up possibly where you think you might want to be. Um, so, well, I think it is very much support at postdoctoral level. It goes through the student life cycle, if you like. Mm. I think the curious element of this speech is that, you know, if this is one of four planned speeches for the government to talk about how they will reach their 2.4% uh, target, uh, which, you know, is a, it was an investment of some £60 billion by 2027, there wasn't actually a great deal of financial um, or resource-based uh, anna- you know, announcements in this speech. Um, so, you know, if you were doing the raw maths of what was just announced, um, the, it really, you know, it's hard to see where, where this is going to, what, what is actually in place to add to that, to add to that target, because it is a lot of spending. <laughs> but I think, though, um, I think we can all agree that it's, it's actually really refreshing to see research back on the agenda because certainly the last few uh, months of, uh, of HE policy has really been dominated by speculation on AUGA um, and international and, and, and Brexit. So, it's, it's actually it's nice to see something different being spoken about by the Minister. There is, um, of course, the part of this, as you mentioned, Minto, was about the gagging orders or the non-disclosure agreements. Um, I wonder if, if uh, uh, any other take on whether this is going to be um, a line of attack, for want of a better word, by the government on, on universities to really kind of close down on this behaviour. Attack is completely the wrong word. A line of questioning from the government. Uh, and, I, and I wonder whether this has become, become more prominent. I think we saw it in the press just a few weeks ago. I think it was the University of Liverpool were accused of using their NDAs to, to gag people that were um, that maybe had some, some issues with as them as employers. Um, I wonder if anyone had any more thoughts on that. Maybe what's worth saying is is that um, there are legal protections that are in place for people to speak out about misconduct that, you know, sound like that certainly need a bit of strengthening but still allow people to speak out. But then the actual challenge is the culture piece. Do people feel safe speaking about one institution if it's going to jeopardise their employment prospects um, in another, um, especially in such an interconnected sector um, and where relationships are key? So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a cultural piece that I think that, that we haven't really spoken about and that, um, that, really is, that, that really is, you know, up to the sector to sort of work through. Yeah, I guess I'd agree with Minto on that one. I mean, I think that um, particularly if you go back to the point of those early in their career, I mean, it's difficult. Um, it can take time to establish your presence in, in, in academia and, and what you say and who you say it about can really threaten um, that future. In okay, it's we think we have moved on a lot in terms of of hierarchy and, and gender based hierarchies and class based hierarchies, but in a sense, we have and we haven't. Um, if you think about particular groups who who may or coming in back to the access participation piece again, there's a cultural element here. If you're coming in, you don't have that background, you, you're not established, you don't have the links in that area, your families have links in those areas, uh, it restricts what you believe you can and can't say. Uh, regardless of the order of what may be in place or not, uh, there's, there's two things to do there. Really, if we're going to create that, that this this idea that we can we can speak about what we want to speak about in academia, we should be able to. The place should be yeah. about. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. John Sawkins, Harriet Watt University, Edinburgh. One key article: co-regulation is alive and well and living in Scotland. In a wonky article back in March, Chris Hale reflected on the state of co-regulation within higher education, looking at the issue through an English lens. In Scotland, co-regulation, or partnership working as we prefer to think of it, is alive and well. We believe it's more creative and can achieve more for the sector students than the type of model emerging south of the border. 
an enhancement-led approach to quality in Scotland is founded on a partnership model involving students, providers, funders and the quality body. This partnership has been in place since 2003 and has stood the test of time. Enhancement-led is not code for unchallenging. The enhancement-led institutional review process is rigorous, searching and revealing in a way unmatched by audit-based approaches. And in Scotland, we're proud that higher education's whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Those who move here to work are often struck by the depth and authenticity of partnership working. Next up, unconditional offers were back on the agenda this week after it was suggested that a letter sent last month by Education Secretary Damien Hines was unlawful. Hines wrote to 23 universities urging them to stop the unethical practice of conditional unconditional offers. So, Graham, what is your take on this? I mean, I, I think that this has been raised before how the autonomy of institutions to, to make their own decisions and it's ingrained in the nature of the system. Um, I, I think that uh, certainly... I agree with what was written on the on the site. I think this week that possibly there may be some element of, of possible overreach here, but I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a wise move sectorally to, to go up against the government and go to the hill, as it said in the cast in the podcast on this particular issue. Um, I think there is particularly an issue here with unconditional offers. I mean, if you look at the data, is quite quite staggering, and I think you're 300% more likely, or 300 times, sorry, more likely to get an unconditional offer now than you were seven or eight years ago. So it can't be the case, surely, that in seven or eight years, universities are far more certain about the students they wish to admit on the basis of the the predicted grades they have than they were seven years ago. I mean, that, that, nobody can see that's the case. Um, again, the risk here is that you have something that clearly to those external to the sector as well looks like something that needs greater exploration, looks like something that possibly could not be being done entirely in chest of students, yet there's in the sector willing to, to, to go to the to judicial review to defend it. And I'm, I'm not sure that is, it gives out messages. It gives messages out again that, that hey, education is right and everybody else is wrong on this issue. Uh, and I think, for instance, uh, the whole issue of how it affects the schooling system appears for some people to be not relevant. Well, I think, again, that, that, that is, not only is that wrong, I think that's also a very risky position to take. I mean, for those working particularly in, in upper secondary, in, in sixth forms, in college A-level situations, it's a confusing situation for them that they're encouraging their students to work towards particular examination. Yet, of course, some are being told they, they now don't need uh, to achieve particular grades and some being told they are. And for them, that's a confusing situation. It also undermines, in a sense, where they're judged, which is often on the attainment, well, at least the attainment of their students. Yet, uh, there appears to be no regard to, to how our colleagues in other parts of the educational sector are being affected by some of this decision-making. Um, and again, uh, w- there may be, maybe, uh, a case for, for greater conditional offer-making, but it needs to be done, I think, in collaboration, in partnership, in discussion with others. It's not happening at the moment. Perfect. I've taken a very different view on this. Um, Notwithstanding the concerns that exist around um, unconditional conditional offers, for me, this is a really concerning act because of the precedent that this sets. Um, And the precedent um, here, um, or the or the example here that I want to draw upon is is what happened in Australia, um, my home country, about uh, eighteen months ago, uh, where the Minister for um, Education actually intervened on uh, research grants that had been allocated by the Research Council. 
um, and actually overturned those decisions because he felt that the titles of those projects weren't deemed in the national interest. Now, there's a principle here that you know Australians really admire about the UK system, which is the Haldine principle that protects this and that protects that process to peer review and to research England. Now, on surface, it may look like a press release from the Secretary of State for Education, um, you know, is is you know has little effect. But when it's explicitly stated in the legislation that the minister must not directly give instruction on matters such as course content assessment and admissions being one of them, and where he actually goes against that, I think it is really dangerous because it it, it goes um, it goes very much against um, what what has been set out. If he wishes to, of course, um, influence this um, this admission process or anything, that's why we have the OFS and 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 we work through that framework. So, frankly, I, I, I'm really concerned that um, that we had that we had this kind of behaviour. Because actually, we've we've actually got two things here, haven't we? Because we've got the ethics of conditional unconditional offers, and then actually the education secretary thinking um, uh, thinking that he can make this type of intervention directly to universities, which is which is where the the the, um, the, the um, suggestion that it's unlawful has come in. Uh, Kate, if I may, you I mean you represent at Gilditchie lots of small and specialists. Um, I imagine they'd give a lot of uh, unconditional offers, um, lots of portfolios, work, lots of auditions. So they're, they're not all bad, are they? No, no, not in the slightest. And I agree with Minto, actually. I think if, if the minister wanted to highlight that um, government are concerned with the impact unconditional offers has on um, predicted grades versus actual grades, that's one thing. But actually attacking the sector specifically on um, a legal challenge of whether something um, should happen or not is something completely different. Um, yeah, within our members, we do offer unconditional offers um, and they're mainly based on the fact that the majority of our providers interview all students. So it's not just a case of putting some predicted grades into a computer and having a calculation and, and contextual admissions process to decide whether they're worthy or not of, a, of an unconditional offer. We physically meet our students and talk to them about their motivations for studying, why why this particular course, what are their aspirations for um, professional practice, etc. Um, so I think it is far more complicated than just saying all unconditional offers are bad. Um, and we've also heard, we've been doing a bit of research on um, student perceptions of these things and it is a bit of a mixed picture but some of those students especially those from more deprived backgrounds actually appreciate getting an unconditional offer because it gives them a confidence boost so it's not just about um, allowing students to take their foot off the gas and um, to kind of relax and know that they've got a place at university it is also an empowering feature for some students too. Yeah I mean I think on both points I mean I can take your point that uh, that possibly um, the actions of the minister may set precedent for future actions but I think you've got to be careful how you deal with that because obviously if you then become robustly defend something which even taking Kate's point uh, is certainly something that needs much further attention I'd be interested for instance if in Kate's institutions you're offering maybe more conditional off- unconditional offers than they were six seven years ago and why is that the case so all of a sudden our interviews showing different things than they were six seven years ago I'm not so sure about that I mean it's how you deal with this I mean again the, the problem is that no more how unhappy you may be about how the minister behaves and etc you have to be careful that again you're not perceived by the minister and by others both in politics and outs and in the general populace you've got higher education again uh, claiming that it's right and it's always right and, and don't take advice from anybody else uh i'm i think there's a role for for how you make offers in different ways but as i said before um you're working in an educational system and there are the, the the growth in this sort of form of offer making 
and particularly the way that it's possibly affecting what's happening uh, in the upper secondary phase uh, needs to be discussed in further detail, needs to be looked at in much more detail because otherwise what you're doing again is you're undermining the relationship with HE that many upper secondary phase will have. Uh, we work with a lot of teachers, a lot of schools. They're, they're, they don't, they're there, they're being judged on attainment. All of a sudden they're coming back and half their students are, are getting an offer which doesn't, is not related to A level results. And they're being their job if they're trying to so judge their institutions to judge by how well they, their institutions do at end of A level. I think it's right for us to look at the impact unconditional offers are having on student attainment, both at A-level and BTEC, but also when, once they arrive at university. But I don't think it's wholly our problem, actually. I think the school system and the um, qualification bodies also need to take a hard look at themselves because there are incentives for teachers to give certain predicted grades that they might not truly believe in. And we also know from looking at Nick Hillman's blog um, this week on HEPI that actually there's been a huge influx in um, interest in how awarding bodies uh, mark grades and that that, um, schools aren't able any more to um, challenge some of the authority of those grades like they had done 10, 15 years ago, mainly because they don't have the money to do it anymore. Um, So I don't think it's all about universities. I think we also need to make sure that the schools and the qualification bodies have a robust system um, for grade profiles and and marking. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think the schools, generally speaking, do a very robust way of, of marking and, and they it's just predicted grades. It's a very impossible and difficult job. Um, I, of course, it, it, but of course, you know, again, it's a traditional position, isn't it? Of university to sit down and say it's not our problem. Um, we've been doing that for a long time, the higher education sector. Uh, I think it's not totally pro- the HE sector's problem, but I do think that um, there is a strong argument for thinking of working collaborative, thinking of an educational system overall, not always pushing back and saying that we will do what we believe is right for our own sector. Uh, and frankly, a lot of this unconditional offer making is to ensure that students go to an institution. Next up, we talk about a new HEP report on measuring well-being. But first, I want to tell you that next week we're hosting our event, Rules of Engagement, Building Political Trust and Confidence in Universities. The event is a must-attend for people working in policy, public affairs and external stakeholder management in universities. The day will focus on the policy challenges facing higher education, how to influence and all the tools you need to affect political and policy change. We have plenaries featuring some of the best political commentators and sector insiders. We've got workshops focusing on the skills of influencing and new this year there will be an opportunity to have in-depth policy conversations with your peers at the policy roundtables sure to satisfy your inner wonk for at least the next week to book your place and to see the full agenda go to wonky.com forward slash events that's wonky.com forward slash events and we look forward to seeing you all there next Heppy has produced a report on measuring well-being uh, Kate would you mind giving us an overview of this one please Sure. So, um, yeah, Rachel Hewitt's pulled together a really helpful paper, actually, on um, how we measure mental health and well-being for both staff and students. Um, And her two key arguments were, firstly, we need to stop conflating well-being and mental health because they're two very distinctive issues, um, especially with mental health needing kind of clinical intervention and not just um, increasing student support functions in times of crisis or um, during particularly stressful situations. So we need to make sure that we we do have a distinctive approach to those two areas. Um, And her second point was that we have 
have to start collecting better data um, on staff and student wellbeing and mental health so that we can really understand the issues and, and tackle this perceived crisis. Um, she suggests that we use the four wellbeing measures um, that are used in the ONS annual population survey. Um, and it's um, four questions that HEPI have also used in their joint student academic experience research with Advanced HE over the last five years. Um, and I think whilst I agree that we do need more data about well-being, I can't help but think that the four questions the ONS use only highlight where there may be a problem and they don't really talk about um, any reason as to why the problem might exist. So, for example, for students, we know that the first few weeks are very stressful, where they're most likely to feel alone and homesick. Um, and similarly, coursework and exam time is also particularly stressful. Um, and some students struggle to juggle studying and undertaking part-time work that they need to do in order to have enough money. Um, and there are plenty of other examples, I think, um, of poor well-being amongst students. And there are definitely different triggers for staff. And we don't we don't really ask those questions um, in a lot of detail. Um, and actually, at the end of the last year, Guild HE published a research report on the ways in which our members are approaching well-being specifically um, and how they're developing well-being strategies in conjunction with their student bodies. Um, and I think some of those recommendations might be useful to larger HEIs too. So that's um, available from our website. Um, and from a staff perspective, UCR are running a mental health and wellbeing conference for staff on the 20th of June. Um, so they're kind of starting to take a lead on how um, we should be talking about these issues in relation to staff. Mm. Thank you for that. We'll make sure that the uh, Guild HE research are in the show notes uh, for this. So if you're listening to this, it, it'll be in the show notes attached. Minto, go ahead. I, I agree entirely with, with Kate's analysis of, of, of this paper. I thought it was incredibly helpful. And it's, you know, it's high time that we actually start looking at how we gather better data on both student and, and staff well-being. I mean, it should be noted that actually the data that, that is available on student mental health is, is also pretty scarce. And you know, it doesn't actually look at the specific experience of students in higher education. And, and what the context of that is, uh, most of the data is drawn from, you know, general NHS public health um, data. I think the, the, the really, I hope what this um, paper really generates um, is a really important discussion around what is it that we are actually working towards in this space. Because data is, is, is helpful, but we also need some measures of um, not necessarily success, but some metrics and some outcomes that actually universities can, can start to measure some of their interventions against. Because what we have is, you know, we have a cluster of interventions in, in higher education, ranging from puppy dogs through to, um, you know, comprehensive specialist mental health services in universities. And, you know, they, they may or may not serve a purpose. Um, but, you know, we need to have a better understanding of what is, um, what is it that we're working towards and what's actually going to um, help us get there. And we've actually done some, um, some work on this, uh, on the wonky site this week as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, I would say that I agree in the paper the need to try and separate well-being from mental health and um, I think there's actually a lot more to be done in this space which, which goes beyond what the paper does that looks at the overall contribution of higher education societal well-being I'm interested there's a lot of work being done by the OECD and actually OES as well that looks at well-being beyond the issue of the individual level of happiness that looks at the uh, concepts of societal well-being as being related to the objectives for instance that an economy may have there's some very interesting work done uh, several years ago in France, looking at alternative ways of measuring GDP, for instance, incorporating concepts of societal well-being. And I think there's an interesting debate to be had about the purpose of higher education almost here. And it contributes not just to the economy, but to the well-being of society. There's, some, there's, a, really, there's a really actual relevant agenda, this, in terms of 
not just um, individual mental health for students and staff, but also, again, some of the challenges society is facing vis-a-vis climate change, vis-a-vis the nature of economic growth and where education fits within all that. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think the paper is interesting, but it's short, but there's much room for a longer paper that looks at well-being in a broader sense. For instance, how we look at education, health, and environment, etc., and how that is a measure of societal well-being and where HE fits within that. Uh, and I think there's a very interesting, both for all philosophical agenda and nature of education there we can pursue. I agree. And I think one of the key reasons why people come to university is to improve their job prospects. And actually, it seems to be that the majority of the wellbeing initiatives that happen in institutions are very much focused on you as a student going through a stressful situation. Whereas actually, we could definitely do a lot more work on supporting students to have positive wellbeing strategies that they can use throughout their careers. Now, it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment with a dissatisfaction rate of zero. You might have seen on the site that we have inverted the National Student Survey to look at dissatisfaction rates. Today we take that one step further and examine correlations between questions. Specifically, I plotted dissatisfaction expressed via the percentage giving a score of 1 or 2 for question 1, staff are good at explaining things, against the dreaded question 10. Feedback on my work has been timely. For clarity, I've used whole institution scores and filtered to exclude responses sizes of less than 50 students. Yes, but does it correlate? So I don't think it correlates um, because students would think of the first part as the way that um, their lecturers teach the subject and feedback is generally just reserved for talking about feedback specifically in relation to their assignments. Yeah, I wouldn't think it necessarily correlates. I mean, having taught myself in education for, you know, coming up for 20 years on and off, I mean, there are different kinds of skills or different kinds of almost proclivities. Uh, there are many staff who, who we've, I've worked with who may be good at explaining things, maybe good lecturers, good teachers, but feedback's actually a little more labour-intensive feedback. Uh, and often it possibly also depends upon what way happen. It, it can be interpreted as it's happening within uh, taught sessions, but also between sessions. And that's a different kind of almost commitment skill. So they may do, but I don't necessarily see why they would do uh, conceptually. Not really, no. R squared is 0.23, so we're seeing a very weak correlation, most likely driven by overall dissatisfaction than a particular link between responses to the two questions. Clearly, it is possible to have a course where things are explained badly by staff, but feedback is prompt. Quite how good a course that would be is left as an exercise for the listener. I go into criticisms of the way the NSS is generally used more in the article on the site, but as a general point, the rounding applied will have an impact on the presentation, and institutions with low response rate, including some well-known institutions subject to boycotts, will not be shown. As where the data doesn't exist, I have not plotted it. And finally, data obtained through freedom of information requests from 92 universities in the UK shows that 277 students have been sanctioned for racist or homophobic behaviour in the past three years. This figure includes 104 just in 2018-19. So Minto, what do you make of this? 
Very simply, Rachel, I think that um, academic freedom and having um, controversial views doesn't mean that you get to be a bully and doesn't mean that you get to be unlawful in, in, in what you say. And I think what we've seen from universities in response to some of the commentary that um, has you know has been deemed inappropriate in the space is really a good thing. Um, I think you know we, we have to use both the carrot and the stick in terms of regulating appropriate student behaviour and you know ensuring safe and respectful campuses. Um, you know the carrot being awareness messages and education and you know greater effort around building building tolerance and, and inclusion. But you need the stick, and I think here what we're seeing is that the stick is being used to uh, discipline um, unacceptable behaviour. Uh- Kit, I was, um, when I saw these figures at first, I was slightly troubled, but then I thought, actually, maybe that's not a lot, actually, over three years. I don't know, maybe that's not a lot of, uh, of people that have been sanctioned. It's not no. a huge figure. No, you're right. I don't think it is a huge figure. Um, and I think there there are many more examples of these that remain unchecked. And um, I think it's pretty simple that students should always be challenged if they behave or say things that are inappropriate, either in person or on social media. Um, and they should be sanctioned if they're being offensive or derogatory. Um, but I think there is a kind of a slightly broader issue that we need to pick up, which is having a better understanding of students' backgrounds and supporting all students to understand what is acceptable. Um, because there are pockets of the country where saying something something might genuinely seem to be harmless and a joke and they don't really understand the context in which they're saying something. Um, But I think one of the best parts of going to university is to meet a diverse range of students from different backgrounds and cultures. But we need to set some ground rules at the beginning to to get everyone to realise that there, there are sensitivities and there are different ways of behaving which which aren't offensive to others. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I don't think it's a lot. I think if you're saying 277 over 92 institutions over three years, it's not a lot at all. It's, it's probably a tip of the iceberg in terms of actually what may be being said and being done. I just see what the sanctions are as well, what they actually mean. Um, I agree that, that part of being university support those to, to, to understand how their views may be different. But again, I'd just caution against a little bit what Kate said. I think that, yes, there may be certain parts of the pockets of the country, maybe where things are said that people don't understand. But that gives you the, again, that can re- reiterate the view that there are certain communities where it's okay to say homophobic and racist things. This happens a lot. I need to see actually who's sanctioned. There are many students who come from parts of the country which may be very privileged, etc., who hold these attitudes perhaps very deeply. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that if anything, it's a it's a call to do more on this issue. They, they need to support students in this area as well. But look, how how universities should be spaces where people of all backgrounds come together, and we should be there should be exemplary spaces in, in terms of freedom of expression and identity. Uh, and if in doing that, it means that one has to sanction and sanction more, then. That's what needs to be done. And we are preparing students, of course, to enter the world of work, um, to be able to contribute to public life, uh, to hold positions of power, and we want to make sure they're doing that um, as, as good, ethically-minded people. And to your point, Rachel, around these numbers being lo- low, you know, they, they may be, but I guess I suppose what we don't have is, is, um, you know, is what is being underreported or what is also being um, you know, rejected or, or not being worked through. And I think you know, to that end, we can, we can always be doing more to ensure that students that are you know, victims of, of certain types of behaviour that might be inappropriate, you know, that they're encouraged to report. Um, you know, we see um, certainly in, 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 in Australia on issues of sexual harassment that there is um, some evidence to say that there's under-reporting on, on, on certain types of behaviours and I would assume that that would be true of, of other types of inappropriate behaviour. So um, it's really about making, um, you know, empowering students to, to actually speak up more as well. 
but also staff Minto. Yeah, um, I think we we definitely need to empower everyone within the academic community to call people out when they're doing something that's offensive. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Kate, Graham and Minto and to everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay unconditional. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.